Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of APIs Unplugged. My name is Matt McClarty. I'm the Global Field CTO for MuleSoft, and it's great to have you here. As always, it is a pleasure to have Mr. Mike Amundsen join me. Mike, what's going on? Hey, not much. Uh, been looking forward to this one for a while. Uh, things are going fine here day to day. It's a new year, new adventures. I'm looking looking ahead. All right. Well, I guess the city of Cincinnati is it, you know, is recovering from, uh, was it yesterday's? Yeah. Game, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So, depending on when you're when you're listening to this, this is uh, we had our big American football match uh, for the uh, for the conference championship, and we lost. Yeah. Last year we yeah. won. This year we lost. So, the 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 thing is, you know, Cincinnati's a is a nice little town. We're we're not mad at our players at all. We're mad at the refs. Ref. We're mad at the yes. other team. All those other kinds of things. But, you know, we're supportive of our team. So, that's, um, yeah, that's it was a little subdued in the grocery store this morning. Everybody's still wearing their Bengals gear. We were hoping we were headed to the <laughs> Super Bowl, but we're not. But everybody, you know, they're chill. Oh, geez. Are we, we love are we allowed to say Super Bowl? We might get hit for that, but we'll see. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, we might. Yeah, we might have to pay for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think yeah. that's why I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about AI later in the session. But I think uh, I think refs are important for that role like they have to take the blame if you had if you had ai refereeing sports matches you know how would you i guess you just blame the ai anyway hey that no you can't do that can't do so this is our annual highlights episode we find ourselves here at the end of another season of apis unplugged as always it's been such a such a great experience learning from so many guests just having the opportunity to talk to so many guests, you know, we had every every episode offers so many nuggets, but we're gonna we're gonna distill it down here to a clip from from each one. Yep. Um, and you know, I think I think that it's you know just as every other season, we really covered a lot of ground. Everything from uh, oh, yeah. from just talking to startups in the space to learning about you know established enterprises that are really getting value out of APIs to new tech trends and. And, you know, we even introduced some sort of historical segments as well. So, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to sort of looking back on the, on, on another year in the, in the 2020s that felt like a decade, right? That's right. Right. So, so our first episode, we always try and, uh, you know, be the, do the Nostradamus thing. We, we did uh, a set of predictions. Uh, I'm not going to do the full audit to see how accurate we were on all fronts, but certainly, um, and, and, you know, I think going into the year, AI is always a hot topic, but wow, definitely coming out of the year with uh, chat GPT seeming to take all the tech headlines, we were, we were talking about something very relevant, but I think, I think you had something uh, to say, Mike, on, on an area that's really important in the AI space. So let's, let's have a listen here. But I think we're going to see more and more intersection with the world of APIs and AI in general. We already see some of it in, in the product space. Uh, think about the RPA itself, like figuring out how I'm going to, uh, you know, turn this this particular action into data, or save it, or operate that machine from a distance, or anything like that. But I think there's a lot going on in the AI space. I just happened to notice. I think you and I were talking about this last week that uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, office NIST NIST. Um, which uh, is the uh, you know technology sort of standards uh, committee has uh, announced their AI risk management framework. They're trying to come up with some get some handle on how you think about uh, uh, risks when you're using AI, which I think is a really good sign. I don't know a lot of the details of what they're doing, but I think you know we've talked about this in a, a couple other capacities. Who your owner is, who your trainer is, what your data sources are, what your algorithms are. All these things are becoming really important for everybody to understand, to get rid of sort of the black boxy approach. I know ACM yeah. just did a whole issue on it, I think, two months ago. So I think that's going to be a big part uh, of rise of regulation for hmm. AI. And I think I think we're going to we may not like how it, you know, the direction it goes, but I think we're going to see more and more of that in 2022. 
we've got lots of AI going on. I'm not sure we got a lot of regulation or observability <laughs> yet. But, no, no. but so that, that part of the prediction may be off a little bit, but hopefully we will uh, sometime soon. And of course, you know, when I mentioned all of that, I was really talking about the notion of, of governability, of governance, of, of being able to see what's ahead of us and coordinate things. And our second episode, we talked to Matthew Reinbold of Concentric Catalyst about API governance. And he had a really interesting take on sort of what happens when you get complex independent systems and you're kind of trying to design a, a, a whole system. Let's, let's check out what, what Matthew had to say. When it, when it comes to where we're at with software, I think on one hand, we've dealt with complexity through a number of different reductionist techniques. So that, that's a big statement. Let me, let me add some color to that. Um, you know, when it comes to things like agile, it's all about reducing the amount of time that we take to get meaningful work into people's hands. Okay, reduction of time. When we talk about service mm -hmm. architectures, it's about reducing the th um, the size of the thing we're trying to deliver. So rather than one big monolith, it's now a number of pieces like microservices mm -hmm. or, or something akin to that. Even DevOps with mm -hmm. the idea of continuous integration and continuous development. It's all about reducing the size and the time that it takes to uh, integrate and to put things into an environment. Mm -hmm. And through these reductionist techniques, we have seen substantial gains in the complexity and the, the type and variety of software that we're able to produce. Simply, the developers can now grok what they're doing because what they're doing is smaller and more focused. However, in the course of doing that, we've introduced another problem. You know, when, when you read about teams that previously had monoliths and they've gone to microservices and then that was, that became a mess and now they're going back to monoliths. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is we're losing a coordinating function. We're losing something to maintain the cohesion of the larger system. When people only have access to these small independent bits, they end up without some kind of other forcing factor, they end up uh, maximizing the local optimization of that thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's really great for the thing, but you lose the essence of the larger thing. Um, Russell Ackoff is mm -hmm. a br or was a brilliant person that has some, a variety of very entertaining videos on this exact subject that, for example, if you went out and you said, okay, we're going to produce the best automobile that ever was. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a, an exhaustive examination of every single vehicle that's ever been produced. And we're going to find the best engine. We're going to find the best transmission. We're going to find the best um, chassis, so on and so forth. <clears throat> and we're going to bring all those together. So maybe, maybe you have a Bugatti Veyron engine. Maybe you have a, a chassis from a, a Chevy uh, uh, square body and so on and so forth. Like, I, I, I know some of the audience may not be car people, but basically you go out and you, you find the best pieces and you bring them back and you don't have an automobile because even though you've, you've gotten the best, the localized, um, most efficient, maximized individual pieces you, you don't even have an automobile because the linkages between those, the connections between those are no longer valid. They don't connect. There was no larger organizing function. And this is where I go when I talk about complexity in APIs and the current situation of software. And, and really the focus of the book that I'm writing is how do we get back to a place where we still have the benefits of the reductionist approach where we can take a problem and break it down into pieces and not overwhelm our development with the complexity of the entire system, but at the same time still have the ability to coordinate and think about the relationships between the pieces and be able to deliver something that is uh, cohesive and, and makes sense. Yeah, I think that was a that was a great exploration of 
you know, really thinking through complex systems, systems thinking, you know, that's a topic we pick up later in the season as well. Uh, but I think it's just really interesting to think about those abstractions and scopes and, and, and always thinking about what context you're in when you're, when you're doing your, your design, governance, everything. So, you know, again, following along uh, uh, the, what we kicked off with there around the AI regulations and so on, mm-hmm. we, had, we had the opportunity to uh, have the founders of Merge API on, uh, Shensi and Gil, I had a great discussion about their experience launching a, an API product company. Um, but one of the things we dove into there is something that they've put front and center is really when you're a broker of information, how do you deal with security and privacy concerns? And I thought they had some really interesting information to share. So let's let's hear from Shensi here. Given how the world has opened up quite a bit, I think early on we started getting a lot more European customers and that forced mm. us to really start investing in security. And also because we were lucky enough to have market pull where a lot of larger companies wanted us increasingly larger and larger. We also had to invest a lot more in like enterprise features that involve higher level security, uh, which is why we launched a lot of these privacy related features like or displaying requested data, field level scopes, and the ability for customers to also specify um, if they want uh, employees information or a candidate's information to be completely deleted. All of this is available through us too. And we wanted to make sure it was really programmatic through our API. So if anyone wanted to build this into their product, they easily could do it as well. And we found a lot of value from having invested in this upfront. It gave our customers a lot of confidence in the fact that we were also really invested in this as well. And I think just being only five people when we first got started and the fact that we had our SOC 2 type 2 certification showed how seriously we took this up upfront. Yeah, so I, I I love that discussion. That was one of you know this happens every once in a while. We have episodes where you know I, my brain just gets tweaked. Like that's a whole nother level of governance, as Matthew would say, and, and and regulation. I love the phrase outsized responsibility, which I think is is probably a really good way to think about um, being a, an intermediator like that in the API space, and and the role of privacy and, and honoring security and so on and so forth. And uh, and that really leads to uh, our episode four when we were talking to Barb McLean of Solero about uh, fintechs and credit unions. And uh, I loved uh, what she had to say about the notion of the culture of experiments when you're dealing with, you know, maybe relatively small organizations and, and how you get that to work. Let's let's uh, listen to what uh, Barb was talking about. I think it's, it's fair to say not only for Solero as an organization, but many credit unions. Uh, there is this philosophical alignment. And I've actually said out loud in a lot of forums, it's it's sort of like the mafia, but in a really good way. <laughs> but we, in a good we, way, yeah. We find that once you get into the credit union system, you never get back out. And you may not stay with the same organization, but we, we all encounter each other repeatedly. Oh, and now I'm over at this credit union, or I've decided to join an organization like Solero that still is in the system, yeah. um, and we just you, you encounter the same people again and again and again, um, and you know these these projects so much are about how can you help folks understand these new realities? Have you given them time to absorb the change? Have you given them the opportunity to upskill themselves to be ready for that? Mm-hmm. And you know our own example, I think, of that was really interesting we decided to, you know, actually stand up this completely segregated, hived off little team to validate the hypothesis of if we chose to work differently, could we drive a different outcome? And we were really trying to respond to the uh, desires of our credit unions to not be the slowest cog in their wheel. (laughs) And we were sort of able to prove that hypothesis right away. Nine days after the team started, they had their first deployable app. And we looked around at each other and went, wow, it really is true. If you choose, you know, highly skilled, highly autonomous team and sort of unleash them and set them free to choose how they're going to work in the way that suits them best, look at the things that they can do. And we just continued to gain permission to do more because we had that regular, consistent delivery of value. And, you know, so I think that's one of the learnings we've certainly seen is, you have to sometimes actually not know what the heck you're getting into, but have somebody that's courageous enough to say, I trust my team enough to know that we'll continue to get to the right end as long as, you know, you've got that trust amongst your team. Uh, you've got that kind of skill set. You know that you're giving them the freedom to continue to keep their skills up to date. 
And if you can, you know, put enough guardrails in place, but actually just unleash people like that, magic is going to happen. And certainly that's been uh, the most pleasurable experience of my career to get to work alongside, obviously, the most creative people I've ever seen. And, you know, I think we're maybe preaching to the converted, so to speak, with the kind of <laughs> listeners that are going to be here in that regard. But I'm often, I think, surprised a little bit when I say, you know, this team of developers that I'm so lucky to work with, they're actually the most creative people I've ever worked with. And, yeah. and people that work outside of that sphere, I think, don't understand how creative a pursuit uh, software development really is. Yeah, that that was a great discussion. I think, you know, Barb was a was a absolute trooper there. I think she had an issue like an emergency in her hotel room or something like that. I think oh, she might have recorded right. it. She that's, had to record exactly it in the hall. Right. I mean, and you know, it was it was extremely tempting. I wanted to do the clip about the salt and vinegar chip flavors, but maybe that that, well, that last yeah, clip was probably a lot more valuable for our listeners. No, yeah. You two were you two were going too far. I, I, I will say I gotta call out my favorite line in that and that whole clip uh, is, it's sort of like the mafia, but in a really good way. I love, I loved <laughs> yeah, that angle. Yeah, that is it. definitely a, uh, you know, a quotable quote there. So, uh, you know, that was great because I think we're exploring this, this credit union space, which really is a microcosm that can be paralleled in a lot of sort of niche industries, but some really interesting innovation going on in there. Of course, an area that can be so different for, uh, APIs and digital business in general is government. And and it was just uh, uh, a joy to have Mia Jordan join us, who's, you know, digital transformation executive at Salesforce, who is a former CIO in public sector, just talking about all her experiences uh, in just, just doing digital transformation in government and the role that APIs play. So let's hear Mia here. Talking about the role that APIs play in digital government, I think when it when it comes to those two executive orders, that is where CIOs, CISOs, and the, the heads of these agencies really should be looking for what is the current, modern, um, and best approach to, to meet the mail as it relates to these executive orders. And customer experience, I think uh, APIs are the answer to how you put information about uh, a customer's request, uh, application, um, how you give them the answers back about like, you know, where their, where their uh, application is in the process because someone in some other system has updated, you know, their application. All of that uh, kind of magic, right, happens most often uh, via APIs because, um your modern solution like a Salesforce, like a CRM, is often touching a legacy system uh, in the government space. Um, to be a little bit even more specific, you know, in the cybersecurity executive order, a lot of folks are focused on, on zero trust. And zero trust, though, is just but one aspect of what is in the uh, modernization of federal government cybersecurity. They get really specific about accelerating the movement to secure cloud services. Well, that includes your APIs because ultimately, you know, uh, you all would agree that APIs are just another attack surface uh, mm -hmm. that you have to secure. But they also yeah. talk about, they include in that, you know, software as a service, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service. Uh, and so I think that they're being really intentional in these executive orders and, and kind of nudging, almost pushing government executives to say, hey, we've given you the answer um, to the mail as to how you achieve this. Now go and do it. Um, and so I think that uh, the composable approach is something where I think we need to educate our customers a lot more. Um, this whole notion of build, deploy, um, and change quicker is only possible through uh, building composable applications or having a composable architecture. And I just think that there's a real lack of understanding as to how to achieve that. Yeah. So I, again, yeah, Mia has such a great insight. And, you know, when we look at the two episodes, episode four and five with Barb and Mia together, they, they really kind of talk about the same space, right? Dealing with the, the role of APIs and, and the role of modernization uh, from different points of view. Um, 
And, and, I, and I love that approach. And modernization always comes up with this notion about um, automation and, and things like that. And, and in episode six, uh, we got a chance to feature you, Matt, talking about automation and APIs. And I, and I really like the way you put that together. Uh, uh, let's go ahead and uh, uh, play the clip. One of the first areas where I really saw API being a popular term, in my experience, was in the very, very early days of the sort of API gateway or, or at that time, XML gateway, yeah. SOA gateway yeah. space, where the term API came up a lot was, was the fact that what we would do is we'd, we'd have these, you know, these integration appliances or, or SOA gateways, which were there to handle these web service security and integration tasks and so on. But when we talked about the API a lot back in the very early days, we were talking about the fact that you could actually do all the administration functions for that piece of infrastructure using an API. And the reason you'd use an API for that is so that you could automate the operations and the provisioning and all the policy deployment, all these things through an API. And so I feel like you know the purpose of APIs, the reason why people choose APIs over UIs as a way of interacting with any sort of application or function, a lot of the times it's it's to automate things. Yeah. And so, you know, th those examples I'm giving are more around that SDLC type automation. But the same thing, like early days of service-oriented architecture, you know, morphing into these API-led, API-first architectures was let's get a foundation of all these business capabilities that are behind APIs so that they can be part of automated business processes, so that they can be part of orchestrated customer experiences. You know, it's, it's all very much about APIs. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, that's probably the most obvious place where you'd say, yeah, APIs and automation go hand in hand. Yeah, I think it's one of those, uh, those things where you need to think through, whenever you put two things together, you know, one's contained in the other. So it's kind of like, you know, how are APIs used in automation? And then how is automation fulfilled through APIs and so on? So, yeah, there's there's that's a discussion that can go on a long time. Um, so episode seven, we had our first ever, I believe, repeat guest on APIs, which, yeah, you know, he's he's all he's kind of uh, I was talking to Stephen recently, Stephen Fishman, and he, he says he's he's hopes he's achieved friend of the show status. So I guess he's friend of the show, not just guest. But uh, this was a, a topic that had just come up a lot over the year uh, around how do you measure all this stuff? Like, I think there's so much focus. Organizations have been talking about digital transformation for a long time. Organizations doing API programs and API strategies. Um, but even with all that experience, I think there's not a lot of clarity and consistency around how we measure progress there. So it was great to have Stephen on to talk through how to, how you actually measure those things. And, I, and he had some really, you know, this is a topic that he's uh, dove into quite deeply. And he shared some of his uh, best practices around, you know, bringing all the metrics together and making them actionable. Let's hear Stephen. A concrete example of like what I'm talking about would be, let's say you were trying to measure um, quality activities in in a software development lifecycle. Um, like I never, I, I I tell people a couple of different rules. Um, one is you know never never present singular metrics because singular metrics ultimately mm. will will resolve in in Goodhart's law and people uh, uh, aligning to the target and corrupting the target. Um, but like in in a quality model, you might say, hey, I'm going to track some you know, defect escape rates to production. I might track QA cycle time, things like, like that. But the other thing that I, that I asked them to do is not just like the, the thing you're trying to measure, the hedges against it, or, and also um, to include the button or the lever that the person who's looking at the visualization or the, the set of small multiples, what's that button or lever that I could act upon tomorrow to, to ultimately improve? So in the quality example, that might be test automated test coverage. Like if my defect escape rate is going through the roof because I just introduced a whole new 
uh, code set of feature functionality and in, in some experience that I'm that I'm working on. That but my my uh, code coverage went down by you know twenty percent because of all this new code, and I didn't in my MVP plan I didn't include automated testing. That gives an easy answer for mm-hmm. for somebody to look at. It may not always be the right answer, but a lot of times it is. Of uh, you know that hey, I need to drive some more effort and support into my into my my quality automation, my QA testing, both to reduce cycle time and to and to reduce the defect escape rate. Yeah, uh, I I love that Stephen actually referenced Goodhart's law. This notion of sort of once you learn what the what the metrics are, you can kind of game the system. I think we all experience some version of that uh, in our daily lives, and it, and it's good to know what that's called. <laughs> And, and how to deal with it. So I love Stephen's point of view on that. You know, um, the next next episode, we, we talked to uh, Sean Falconer and Harsh Karmakar from Skyflow about, uh, again, privacy and security. And, and they had a very interesting point of view about how the way we deal with privacy, the technology that we have today, has really made it in some ways easier to be a lot more particular, a lot more specific. Um, and he talks about this notion about contextual uh, value for data. Let's 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 hear let's hear what they have to say. Historically, it was a very real dichotomy because we didn't have as many sophisticated controls that were usable to lock down data. So you know, historically, data was either encrypted or it wasn't. But mm-hmm. we've acquired a lot of techniques where we can still make decisions on data without compromising how it's locked down. So I like to talk about data utility, and I'm really glad you used the phrase there because it implies that the value of data is contextual, right? This notion of use value versus sort of a broad exchange market value. The data has value relevant to the decisions or operations I can unlock with it. So many times you don't actually need to see the full sensitive private data to still be able to make the decision you want to based on it, whether it's an analytical use case or conduct the same operational flows you want to. And so when you start to look at the types of decisions or operations you want to do, many times you could do that with a proxy for the data. Yeah, and that... That was interesting. Then that the dichotomy, you know, in our in our last episode of the season before this highlight show, uh, we we're talking about that Yegi rant where he's talking about right. if you, you know, if you if you dial the 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 openness to zero, you don't, you don't have anything. But if you dial the security to zero, you can still have a functioning product. So it's the same same sort of idea. It's always that balancing act that we have to play. That idea of um, openness and security and, and, and dialing back and forth is, is, is really essential. All of this, the, the, the contextual value of data, the notion of you can, you can dial uh, you know, security and so on and so forth, really leads into our next uh, episode, which was our kind of historical uh, figures episode. You and I were talking about Claude Shannon. You know, I've always loved Claude Shannon and, mm-hmm. and, and, and you, you had some really good, uh, interesting things to say about it as well. So um, I think that kind of, it kind of fits in really well with this notion of meaning and, and, and uh, information. Let's, let's hear, let's hear uh, how we were talking about Claude Shannon. Uh, Claude had this fantastic idea, and that is mm-hmm. that information and meaning are separate things. They're not the yes. same thing, and that's a that's Whoa. a huge foundational statement in the work, right? And I think we'll yeah. we'll sort of come back to the implications of that later. Yeah. Yeah. But that was, you know, if we look at sort of the the um, a lot of the work around coding and decoding and and you know, like from the Rosetta Stone through sure. Jacquard yeah. Loom and all these ways of Morse code, you know, coding stuff. I think there was a lot of um, you know, sort of blurred lines between the meaning and or the data and the information or the meaning and the, the data. And he just was like, you know what? There's a whole lot we can do. If we just put meaning to the side, forget about meaning. Yeah. <laughs> yep. What can I, we do? I, I love we, that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was a, that was, that was almost liberating. And it, I think that's, that's like one of the big lessons here is that it was his ability to abstract in the yep. right way that led to, 
so much of this, you know, unencumbering the work, just like he was sort of getting rid of the weight of the differential analyzer. <laughs> you know, he was kind of getting rid of the, 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 the weight of, of, of trying to consider meaning. Yeah, and I think there's there are so many things that came after his initial work that sort of lead us in that same direction, that complexity and actually comes out of some very simple things, right? So even to the point mm-hmm. of DNA and RNA, it's just a handful of letters, but the the possibilities are endless. And Wolfram and all these other people who, you know, work at, at this kind of automation and machine level, you know, they've proven that you can have tons and tons of, of surprisal, which, you know, basically mm-hmm. Shannon says is the interesting, is the information in the message, um, without a lot of, uh, by starting with very, very simple things to start with, even to the point where he was talking about bits on and off, he decided also it's because of him that we get this notion that it's, it's, um, uh, it's logarithmic. It's one, mm-hmm. two, four, eight, 16, 32, you know, it mm-hmm. isn't just decimal. Right. And so there are so many other things that he was thinking about that could add so much more to, you know, how we send information and how we compress information. Yeah. To me, that was the big thing in going back and sort of exploring uh, Shannon was this whole, you know, how, how it was the big aha moment was, hey, if we just forget about meaning, then we can we can better <laughs> understand information. And uh, yeah. You know that's uh, it was profound, and I think we're all we're all living with the effects of that. Now, of course, without uh, Mr. Shannon, there would be no World Wide Web, and right. um, you know that the, the episode that followed was a great opportunity to really explore the book that you published late last year, um, which you know is has great uh, best practices around uh, web APIs and and really especially infusing sort of the lessons we've learned about standing up this World Wide Web, scaling up the World Wide Web, how things are communicating there and bringing those practices in, into a more micro level. But I thought it was great at the end of the episode where, you know, when I asked you, if you could just share one lesson from the book, what that would be. And I think you had a great answer. Let's have a listen. One of the things that appears early in the book I think it appears in the preface, it might appear in the first chapter, and it appears late in the book, it's actually an appendix. And that is this notion of having a kind of a set of principles that have that have driven me uh, to do the kinds of work that I've done. And it isn't just in terms of write, applications I've written, but the way I go about training and writing and traveling and being an evangelist and things. And And that is this notion of we're all kind of in this together kind of approach. (laughs) So to me, all of this hypermedia, all of these things about clients and servers and data and workflow really kind of boils down to this one overarching principle that I have in the book, which is that you need to leverage your global reach to solve problems that you have not necessarily thought of for people that you have never even met before. And that's really what the web does, right? The web lets you solve your problems using stuff that I built. And I hadn't Mm -hmm. even thought of those problems before. And I haven't met you before. And you're in a place that I would probably never travel to. That's, to me, the beauty of all of this. And so this is a book which is a collection of ways that I've tried to live up to that kind of principle. If you focus Mm -hmm. on helping other people to solve problems, maybe people you haven't met before, uh, and, and create something that makes it work for them in a safe and resilient way, I think you're doing an awful lot to make this a better place. And I mean, that's literally what I think about. That's what I thought about all through writing this book. When I hear it played back like that, it sounds a little kind of, you know, kind of bold and, and, and froofy. But, you know, <laughs> it, I really have tried to live up to this, this principle, this notion of, of people you've never met and they're trying to solve problems and so on and so forth. And I think it applies to all all sorts of things. It it sort of uh, drives the way I, I kind of think about interactions. And and that leads really well into our, our episode 11 with uh, Diana Monteleon about uh, systems thinking. Um, and she talks a lot about this notion about systems thinking and APIs. And, and she had some really interesting things to say about design and what you design and how you design it. Let's, uh, let's listen to uh, Diana. But as soon as we started to decouple a front end from a back end, 
so that we could, you know, uh, control, have an application that controls user interaction across multiple devices in multiple contexts, and it just mm -hmm. makes sense to do so. And then you have a back end where you have the code and the queries. Now you have a relationship between those two things. And as soon as you have a relationship between those two things, unless you're going to, and people have said this, well, we'll just have the two databases doc talk directly to each other over yeah. my dead body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we won't. And, and not to say there aren't times in which that's the case, but I'm, I'm partially joking, but mostly not joking. Um, you're, you start to have to design the conversation. Right. How do you design the conversation? And so I think that as soon as you're designing the interface for conversation and the rules and the structure of, of what will happen, you're you're you've gone into the realm of systems thinking. Right. Because you're thinking about mm -hmm. the and this and mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, and so the more. um the more, and this is why when I joke about Kubernetes being APIs, but fundamentally it is the design of an orchestration of yes. relationships based on timing that is asynchronous, right? That has yep. different rules than software does. So I think for, for, for me in my world, especially soon as, um, APIs, event-based interactions, microservices, um, continuous deployment, all these things came into play. We have to develop relationship design skills. And that's really um, a big step into thinking about the system as a, as a whole and the patterns that govern not just the interaction between part A and part B, but the way the whole system interacts. Yeah, it was so much fun having Diana on and just hearing her mm -hmm. whole experience of, you know, her her background is just so fascinating coming out of, you know, bookstores and theaters and then into, yeah. you know, web development and then really into the software architecture and even, you know, organizational thinking space. So, so great insights there. Now, now on that topic of organizational thinking, it was it was definitely a big highlight for us to have uh Matthew Skelton and Manuel Paish from uh, who who are the authors of the Team Topologies book, a book that honestly, so many so many organizations I've been talking to this year, it's clear that that book is not only one they've read but one they're lo looking to try and put into practice. And you know something that's in Team Topologies that of course got caught our eye is, is the, the fact that they have this notion of a team API, you know, an interface that you publish for what your team does. Um, in the way that we might put an API onto a software component, and you know, we asked we asked Matthew about like you know how intentional was that use, and he had, he shared some really interesting insights into why they picked that term, some of the friction that came about, and then you know how, why it's been so useful. So let's hear Matthew. It's very intentional. Well, I mean, API is is like super super techie um, word, right? Application programming interface. Uh, it's yeah. been around since, I don't know when it was first came out, probably the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, for people working in software, it's completely natural, or at least after a while, it's completely natural to think about defining an API, to def defining a very clear interface between two things that need to talk to each other. But this is... This is, this is an alien concept for people who have not come through a software route. Mm. It's a really weird concept for most people who are, who are, who are not aware of software to, to define a very clear interface between two parts of an organization, for example. It, mm -hmm. It's an alien concept. And, um, and, and so that's why actually it feels like is actually quite valuable to map it back to the software API concept as you use that term, even though the, the term you know, team API is quite nerdy and quite, quite, quite technical, <laughs> it, it links it back to what we mean by a software API. Then we can start to talk about that. It's like a plug and a socket. And if you get the wrong kind of plug, it doesn't fit properly. And that's mm -hmm. good because you don't want to plug it into the wrong place and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> and then using that to, to explain the benefits of using an API approach, which is we've got much clearer, clearer definitions. We're setting some expectations. We can make some promises or at least um, 
uh, help people to to have some expectations about what's going to happen on on either side of the API and so on and so on. People start to get it because it starts to start to understand why that's valuable because effectively you're, you're talking about um, service boundaries and expectations and then being able to build on those and therefore if you start to rely on something because it's a nice clear definition then you can go quicker and you don't have to think about as much stuff and wow that's amazing suddenly we don't have to worry about all this all this nonsense we used to have to worry about in the past what really uh, struck me on that conversation again was this this idea that uh, apis and interfaces and designing them is very natural for some of us but incredibly alien for so many others. And as he brings this notion of, of teams and topology and interfaces to other sectors of, of the workspace, whether it's uh, banking or insurance or consumer goods or whatever, it really has some really interesting implications. And I, and I really enjoyed talking with them all, quite a bit. Now that brings us to episode uh, 13, Lucky 13. George Mitri was talking to us about uh, from Discover was talking to us about APIs and, and microservices and about, I loved, um, it was a sort of an unexpected uh, notion, this idea of the beginning of wisdom, like how uh, how microservices and governance and management kind of gets you towards this notion of, of wisdom. Let's, let's see here how George uh, uh, explains that. The beginning of wisdom, uh, it's a quote from Confucius. It's kind of Chinese mm -hmm. quote. Uh, mm -hmm. When he was talking about the beginning of wisdom is calling things by, by the proper names. Mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. and, and, and um, he was emphasizing, Confucius was emphasizing about you cannot reach, uh, bring matters to success without uh, the proper language and the proper, the proper taxonomy. So uh, it's kind of like, you know, if we think that uh, uh, the beginning of any API program is an API inventory, right? <laughs> API inventory is the beginning of an API management. Now, an API taxonomy of that inventory is the beginning of wisdom in that hmm. API management kind of thing, right? So we, we start uh, early on when we started, uh, we had uh, no inventory. It was like, where is my API? Where are the APIs? You know, now we do have the APIs. We have the data, we have some information, have some knowledge, uh, but now how we drive wisdom out of that, uh, out of the data. So taxonomy in, essentially is the, 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 how to bring order to a chaotic uh, or unrela unrelatable uh, information, but now the, the, the seems to be, you know, relatable. Uh, and I feel that one of those, taxonomy is one of those topics that uh, is not talked about enough mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the API space, in the industry. Uh, and I wanted to shine that light on the taxonomy and how it could be really a, a very powerful uh, tool for standardization and, and a, a very powerful tool for uh, portfolio rationalization, for example. Or it could be a very powerful, once you have it, um, it could be a powerful tool for for scaling, uh, mm -hmm. teaching, um, and having that one way one way of working, if you can classify it, you really can you can find it, you can understand it. Uh, it depends on how sophisticated is the taxonomy. You can uh, go deeper quickly on, on the level of the understanding of that API. Um, if you can classify, you can automate it. If you can classify, you can protect it. You know, um, so there's there's a lot of good things that can come out of uh, a good, sophisticated taxonomy. Yeah, George is a is a friend of ours for a while, right? He's been in the API community for a oh, yeah. long time, and and uh, you know, I love the way he's really sort of taken that notion of language and taxonomy and vocabulary, and really parsed out of the out of his experiences working in a very real implementation space around APIs. And I think it's quite helpful for, for people to kind of look at things that way. I know grammar, vocabulary, all these all these sort of language concepts uh, definitely are, are helpful in the design space for APIs. I did not expect a, a quote from Confucius to uh, <laughs> enter into the conversation uh, about APIs and microservices, but it works really, really well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When the topic is the beginning of wisdom, I guess it, it, it totally makes sense from that perspective, but it, it definitely worked. So, you know, along the lines, again, of really working in the, the API trenches, 
Um, we had uh, the great opportunity to have Rena Sarkar and Sarah Horsfall on from IQVIA. It's a very interesting company operating in the life sciences sector, offering what they say, uh, I think, from from molecule to market is their motto about how they yeah, support the whole right. life cycle around life sciences. But they've launched an API marketplace recently um, involving some, you know, sort of the marquee tenants of that right now are around natural language processing. And they were really um, sharing some, some interesting insights around how, you know, how do you get this ship in motion? How do you get the ship out to sea? How do you launch? What type of leadership is involved? And, and Rena, Rena was able to share their, their experiences on, on what really worked to make that happen. The journey is exciting and challenging, to say the least. The most important thing that I've learned through the whole process is that I was lucky to have a, a visionary leader who brought me in, and he had seen the rise of the API economy and um, knew our uh, environment really well, where he knew a lot of our development teams were doing microservices-based um, architecture. So we did have APIs. And so having that wind on your back is just very critical, right? And the other thing was that he was very, he was really a good salesperson too. So he went and convinced top leadership that this was something to bet on. Um, and so we got the funding to at least get started with a f- first few of the APIs that were identified as good candidates. Um I'd say uh, a lot of it has to do with analysis paralysis too, right? Sometimes you just kind of get stuck in a rut thinking, oh, I have to get this right. I have to get this perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we did a quick and dirty sort of market analysis. We involved a research firm and they came back with some learnings from the market. We took some of that. And then, you know, I would say to Sarah and her team's credit, they just came up with a, a subscription tier and decided this is how we'll do it. They certainly had some... Com- competitor analysis that also helped a bit and then they were able to differentiate and position the products pretty well. Uh, But they didn't get stuck in that, you know, we need to get it right. The whole idea was launch it, iterate through it, learn from what the usage data tells us and then make it better. Right. So that that's the test and learn model needs to be entrenched in every company. I think like small nuggets of functional viability that are launched you quickly iterate learn and you know then make the corrections and the last thing i'll say on that is if you can get a customer that is willing to be an advisory role that is also um perfect right um we've unfortunately we did have a few customers that were interested but didn't quite pan out uh, but well, after we launched, we are now actually getting a few customers that are interested in our other APIs that we haven't launched yet, and we're trying to follow that role of advisory customers who will, you know, test it for us at no cost, and then we learn from that data and uh, launch it commercially with a price tag attached. So many, so many great things came out of that episode. I loved uh, Rena's comments. Small nuggets of viability. I love, mm-hmm. I love that idea that mm-hmm. all you really need to do is just keep moving forward with just a little bit more uh, functionality, a little bit better execution, and and making things uh, better day by day. That's a, that's a wonderful way to think about it, because you know you have to fight, like she says, this uh, getting it right mentality, and that sort of, you know, fighting that mentality and, and modifying the culture comes up again in our uh, uh, next episode, which was the episode we just recorded before this, which is again, w- guesting with Stephen Fishman. So not only is Stephen a friend of the show, I think he's moved in. <laughs> <laughs> well, as friends to, do. As friends do, we have to start charging rent and he's eating all, he's eating all the snacks. But uh, I loved his notion about tactics dictate strategy when we were talking about uh, API design and the uh, API economy. Let's, uh, let's uh, hear what Stephen uh, says about that. I, th- I think one of the things that we're, we're like unearthing as we discuss this is uh, a Salesforce term. And I, I don't know if it was Benioff who first said it or, or Parker Harris, I'm not sure, but is that tactics dictate strategy and that um, the, you know, we've all heard about, you know, the ecosystem of experiments and, you know, that stuff in order to create innovation. And that, that I think that that's well understood and true. 
But what people I don't think really get about that that methodology is that having the fully baked out strategy that comes from the top and that people will do things according to what that top down strategy is, that that's just a non-working model. And I think there's a lot of a mm-hmm. lot of evidence for that. And the flip of that is the 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 Salesforce term, which is tactics dictate strategy, and that the part of the reason you do the experiments is to figure out what you don't know. And not just in mm-hmm. the in the technology world, but it's figure out what you don't know about product market fit. And like, are, is it the right timing for this type of idea? And like, can I, can I get some demand and pull through of, of that idea? And when those things happen, that's like the aha moment. And it's not because you like intended it, because like maybe you get lucky with, you know, mm-hmm. one experiment to one fit, one success. But I think it's more like that you're doing, you know, a number of experiments looking for the ones to separate the wheat from the chaff on and the ones where you get the real pull through, develop a business and economic model around that. And to let those 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 tactics that are successful create the strategy to go forward and and scale those into something that is you know, profitable and beneficial. Yeah, it, it seems like just yesterday that we were having that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, it was I just a couple of days ago. Yeah. A couple of days ago. That's and, right. and, and in terms of Stephen moving in, you know, he was here in my house, actually. He moved in for a few days as we were working on the book. Uh, that's right. That's right. You, we yeah. mentioned that in the episode. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. A great, a great and gracious guest. So, um, you know, that's that was, we look, look at how much ground we covered there. Um, it's wow, just, yeah. it's just amazing. I think, uh, you know, if you look at the breadth of topics in season one, season two, like there's no, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've been doing this uh, whole, you know, I, I, one thing I kept talking about all year is these great courses that I've been listening yeah. to. And, and, and lately, uh, the, the one I'm on now is the study of time, right. Oh. And how in time, time always moves forward and the entropy <laughs> always increases as time yep. moves forward. So that's, API entropy is, I guess, constantly increasing here. As we want one more reference you back betcha. to Shannon, but no, it's 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 always such a pleasure. Um, I think uh, it, you know, Mike, it's it's always great. You know, we started these this podcast. It was really about sharing our discussions, uh, um, yeah. and and uh, you know, that's we always have fun. We're chatting, always have fun. We have the guests on. Um, we've had great feedback from listeners throughout throughout the year so hopefully if you if you listen to the highlights episode um if some stood out we strongly encourage you go back and listen to the whole episode we promise yeah. uh, promise there's lots more nuggets than just that but mike just a big thanks for another great season absolutely enjoyed every bit of it and looking forward to season four yes and and to all listeners thank you so much we appreciate uh, hearing from you we appreciate you listening to our episodes and we look forward to welcoming you Uh, to season four of APIs Unplugged. Until then, bye for now.